Well, thank you, Vincent, for leading us uh, in uh, study of uh, and celebration of the Lord's table. Uh, I have a couple of quick announcements uh, before we jump into our passage. And, uh, and John, you can pass the uh, communion cups to the center aisles where they'll be uh, collected. Uh, but uh, we're going to begin to uh, press into service uh, some volunteers. And what we're going to be asking is that all who are, uh, I guess, benefiting uh, and sending their, their children to uh, children's ministry is that you guys would uh, begin to volunteer in our children's ministry. We're uh, always uh, shorthanded and we have a, a growing number of uh, children in our church. And have you guys seen how many pregnant ladies there are in the church? Like there, there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of birth happening. Uh, and so the, the church is growing in more than one way. Uh, but we would uh, just be very blessed if you guys would participate with us and, and begin to volunteer uh, in that way. And then I have another special announcement uh, for uh, the youth students, the high schoolers in particular, and then uh, any and all parents. Uh, I know uh, even parents of young children, uh, this is something that you need to begin to think about. So on Wednesday night, September 11th, uh, I'm going to be meeting uh, with the high school students and talking about uh, relationships uh, and, and dating and how we do that in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord. Uh, and the reason that all parents are invited uh, in that or to that discussion, again, if you, whether your kids are two-year-old or, uh, you know, 20, uh, is that becomes something that you as parents need to eventually shepherd them in. Uh, and it's uh, something that uh, teens have a lot of questions about. So I said, hey, you know what, I'm going to answer that questions with the teens, and I would love for parents uh, to be there to know kind of, hey, where we are coming from and why. Uh, so I just want to extend that invitation uh, to everybody uh, who would like to attend that, and that would be again Wednesday, September 11th. I'll be here uh, in this room uh, beginning at uh, 6.30ish. We'll do some, uh, some music and then we'll, we'll jump into that topic. Uh, just what every father wants to know, right, of how to shepherd his daughter uh, in those things. You dread those days. I, don't, I just have two boys now, so it's a little bit easier in terms of the dating. But uh, it's still, still a big topic uh, to be able to, to shepherd others in, uh, let alone your own children. But... Uh, anyways, if you if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to John chapter four, and we're going to continue our study there in John chapter four. And uh, as you're turning there, and back in 1977, uh, in Lake Arthur, New Mexico, there was a, a woman named Maria Rubio uh, who was uh, assembling a burrito when she noticed that the skillet marks on a tortilla that she had been grilling up. Uh, resembled the face of Jesus. And she excitedly showed the tortilla to her husband and her neighbors, and they all agreed that the burn marks on this tortilla looked like uh, the iconic Roman Catholic images of Jesus. So Mrs. Rubio then went to her Roman Catholic priest and to have the tortilla blessed. Uh, and she testified that her tortilla had changed her life. And her husband, who was there with her, agreed uh, saying that she had been a, a more peaceful, happy, and submissive wife since the tortilla had arrived in their home. And the priest, while he was not accustomed to blessing tortillas, he eventually did agree to do so, and he, he blessed the tortilla. And so uh, Mrs. Rubio uh, took the tortilla home and put it in a shadow box, and then Mr. Rubio uh, built an altar for this shadow box, and they put it in a shed in their backyard. Uh, and they began to open up this little shed, this little shrine, uh, to visitors who would like to come and see 
This is what it was called. The Shrine of the Jesus of the Tortilla. And just within a few months, there were 8,000 people who came to visit that shrine. And within uh, two years, the total number of visitors had ballooned up to 35,000 people. And as you can imagine, the older that tortilla got, it began to age. And the burn marks faded and it became more and more difficult to see the face of Jesus in this tortilla. And then in 2005, when the tortilla was nearly 30 years old, Mrs. Rubio's granddaughter was taking it to school for show and tell and somebody dropped the shadow box and not only the box shattered, but also the tortilla. You want to know what happens to a 28-year-old tortilla? That's what happens. And uh, initially when we hear that story, it just seems way out there, right? It seems ridiculous. How can somebody be convinced that the burn marks on a tortilla uh, is some divine message or some sacred relic to be worshipped. How can this tortilla be so mesmerizing to so many? And as ridiculous as this story is, it also at the same time echoes biblical truth. You say, how does it do that? Well, in Genesis 1, what we see, verses 26 to 28, that God created us in His own image. And part of bearing the image of God built into us is a desire to worship. And that was initially good because our desire would be to worship God. But after the fall, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God and placed all of humanity under the curse, our, our desire has changed. It has been transformed. And rather than uh, desiring to worship the one true God, we have a different desire. We still have the the drive to worship, but now we we are driven to worship other things. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1, says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Speaking of all humanity, he says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the Creator rather than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. We are all still driven to worship, but rather than worshiping the God who has given us life and breath and everything, we worship those things that are created. We worship silly things, like tortillas. You may not have been bowing the knee to a tortilla, but I guarantee you have bowed down to other idols. Bowed down to other things that you think will will make you happy. We looked at last week talked about broken cisterns, those things that we turn to as a solution to our problems or things that we believe believe will be a satisfaction, a source of satisfaction to us. And in Jesus' conversation with this Samaritan woman at the the well began by, by pointing out to her, look, you need something more than just this water. I can give you living water. Look at that part of the conversation last week in verses 7 through 14. And initially, 
the woman didn't understand what Jesus was saying. He gives her this offer, but she's not comprehending what he is offering to her. But look with me at those verses, verses 7 through 14 in John chapter 4. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What we see here is that as this woman was misinterpreting what Jesus was saying, she's only comprehending him on a, a physical, literal level. He says, here's the, the water that I can offer to you. She says, well, how are you going to give me that water? You don't have anything to draw water from this well. It's a, over 100 feet deep. How are you going to give this water that you're promising me? So Jesus, in, in the next uh, paragraph, is going to change tactics a little bit because she's not, she's not tracking with him on, on this path. So he says, all right, let me, let me take a different approach to this. And so what we're going to see in, in verses 15 through 26 is that Jesus is going, to, he's going to change the subject in this conversation. And he's going to steer the conversation so that this woman's sin comes to light. And he's going to steer the conversation so that she begins to see her own sinfulness. And when he does that, she's going to try to change the subject. She's going to try to move the conversation to a, a, a theological debate that is far from her. But this doesn't phase Jesus because he just continues on. Okay, here's what we need to talk about. And I'm going to, I'm going to get there no matter where you try and steer the conversation. And he's going to end up speaking and discussing worship with her. But the subject overall has not really changed because, as we're going to see, worship is at the heart of this discussion. What is this woman worshiping? Who is she seeing as a solution to her problems? Where is she finding her ultimate satisfaction in life? So look with me at verses 15 through 26, what we're going to look at and study this morning. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. What we're going to see here in this discussion is Jesus having this evangelistic conversation, but also shepherding this woman on the nature of true worship. What does it really look like to worship God as He has called us to worship Him? And all too often... We probably just speed through life without really thinking about how we are worshiping God. And probably also don't think about how is God calling us to worship. And if we were to to sit down and, and compare the two, what God is calling us to be as worshipers and what we actually are as worshipers, we would probably see a significant gap. We would see how far short we fall And as we see that gap, then the question arises, how do we close that gap? How do we grow into, how do we grow to become the worshipers that God is calling us to be? What we see here is a a biblical explanation of what God is calling us to be as worshipers. And so what we're going to see in this passage is four connections that we need to make if we're going to grow in worship, if we're going to move from where we are, to where God wants us to be, here's what we need to pay attention to. Here's the connections that we need to make in this passage. And the first connection we we see in verses 15 through 18, that we must connect our worship with our living. And we saw in verse 15 that the Samaritan woman wanted the living water. Jesus finally convinced her, hey, I have living water, I can offer this to you. And she says, fine, I'll take it. But she wants it for the wrong reasons. She wants it for for selfish reasons. She wants it for reasons of personal convenience. And she gave two reasons. The first one, so she would no longer be continually thirsty. And the second one, so that she would no longer have to come each and every day to get well or get water from this well. So she wants the water, but just for the advantages that it would bring to her. Because she's not understanding, Jesus says, all right, I'm going, to, I'm going to steer the conversation elsewhere. And he's going to bring up a topic that he knows is going to get her to begin to see her sinfulness. So he gives her this instruction. He says, go and, and summon your husband and, and come back here and let's talk. If you want this living water, let, let's share it with others and bring your husband and I'll come speak with you both. And then the woman says, well, I, I have no husband. And, and Jesus then commends her for her honesty. But even though she's, she's honest, it's, it's, a, it's only a partial truth. And, and Jesus reveals that. And he reveals his own omniscience by saying, Hey, you spoke rightly when you said you don't have a husband now. But, but here's the truth. You've had five husbands. And now, Jesus says, you are living with a sixth who's not your husband. 
And the, the Greek word here could either be translated uh, as man or as husband. And, and we're not given all of the details of how this woman has gone through five marriages. We don't know. Uh, and that's not the point to get into the details. The, de- the, the big point that we're supposed to gather from these, this fact that she's been with five husbands and now is with another, is that she's a, she's a promiscuous woman. That, that's the, the big picture. But Jesus is going to say, hey... Here's your sin. Now let's begin to deal with it. You can't just cover this sin up. If you're going to, to follow Jesus as Lord, as Savior, if you're going to put your faith and trust in Him, He is going to deal with sin. Now, and this woman's sin is what has made her into a social outcast. This is why she's coming to the well in the middle of the day by herself. And this is why she's going to a well that's further out than other wells that she could have easily gone to. She's a social outcast that Jesus is reaching out to and ministering to. And Jesus is going to bring the truth of her sinfulness to the forefront of this conversation. And he has this amazing ability with people. Uh, As you read throughout the Gospels, he has this way of just steering the conversation exactly how it needs to go to address the biggest issue in a person's life. He does this with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes up and says, what must I do to be saved, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus kind of lists out these commandments, trying to help this young man see his sinfulness. And the young man says, well, I've done all of that. I have a perfect score. And Jesus is like, all right, well, then just go and sell everything that you have and come follow me. And the young man goes away grieved because Jesus put his finger exactly on the idol that that young man had. Possessions. Money. Because the man went away grieving because he was very wealthy. And that is again what Jesus does here. He always goes to the biggest sin, the biggest issue in a person's life and says, all right, let's deal with this. I love what D.A. Carson says says, if he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, inevitably he will deal with sin in those who express some interest in knowing and following him. If we're, if we're going to follow Jesus as disciples, we, we better come to grips with the fact that he's going to reveal our sin to us and to others. It has to come out if we're going to deal with it. We cannot worship him without a full realization of our own sinfulness. Indeed, we can't worship God rightly until we see ourselves rightly. Until we come to grips that we have to connect our worship with the way that we are living. And if we haven't been living for the Lord, then we need to come to grips with that. To confess it, to acknowledge it. We can't live a duplicitous life. So as Jesus begins this conversation with this woman, he's going to say, you need to see your sin. There's a story that James Montgomery Boyce tells of his time living in, in Basel, Switzerland. He says there's a carnival there each year called, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, but uh, Fasnacht. Uh, and it's, it's much like Mardi Gras uh, that is celebrated in predominantly Catholic countries or Catholic areas of a country. Uh, and it's held uh, one week uh, a year. And w- uh, this celebration, this Fasnacht festival certainly doesn't show uh, that the city of Basel is Christian or Roman Catholic. 
Because uh, during the, the time of the carnival, uh, it's always a, a period of riotous behavior. Uh, and it's uh, th- these people who are normally restrained just begin to, to have no restraints. They cast off everything and they go and do whatever they would like to do. And there's even jokes about it, about how much sin takes place during the, the carnival. But nobody knows precisely who is doing what because all of the, the people at the carnival wear masks. But each year during Fashnacht, the, the Salvation Army would put forth this uh, attempt to challenge the people to a higher standard. They would put out these uh, large posters around the city with this German inscription that says, Gott seit hinter dein mask. You guys get that? Oh, yeah. Uh, which translated means, God sees behind your mask. God knows what is taking place. Simply putting a mask on is not going to hide anything from God. And that is what we see here that Jesus is doing with this Samaritan woman. If, if you're going to follow Christ, He's going to unmask you. And He's going to show you that you have been unmasked. Say, so if you want to worship Christ, if you want to follow Him, this is the first thing that we have to deal with. And you need to connect how you have been living with how you need to now worship. And beginning to see our sinfulness in this way is the, is the doorway to true worship. Doesn't doesn't equate with true worship, but you're not gonna you're not going to enter into true worship without first acknowledging your sinfulness, without first confessing your need before a holy God. And the question then that this raises is, are you at that doorway? Are you aware of your sinfulness? Are you willing to walk through that doorway or you just want to camp out right there? Does the sight of your sin humble you before God? Does the sight of your sin give you a desire to cry out to God for mercy? That God... Be patient with me, a sinner. I love just as we were reading last month in in First Chronicles, as David was preparing to pray for all the materials that he gathered, he wasn't going to get to build the temple that he wanted to build God because he was a sinful man. And he acknowledged that. He said, My hands have too much blood on them, but God's saying Solomon's going to build the temple. And I love in First Chronicles 28 how David speaks to his son and charges him He says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. So King David is urging Solomon to make this connection. If you really want to worship God, it's going to impact the way that you live. Our lifestyle and our worship are not two separate portions of our existence. We can't partition them off and say, well, I'll worship God in this way, but then I'm going to live this way. It's not how it works. All of our life is intended to be lived to the glory of God in His presence, not for ourselves, but for Him. And that is the first connection that we have to make if we are going to grow in our worship, to see our own sinfulness. 
before God. To confess it. To acknowledge it. And then to turn from it. And that is exactly what we're going to see the Samaritan woman does in this next connection. In verses 19 through 21, this second connection that we need to make if we're going to grow in our worship is that we must disconnect our worship from a location. Look at me at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And so when confronted with her sin, which, if we could just put ourselves in this woman's sandals, that's a hard thing to hear, right? That's a hard thing to have your, your biggest sin issue just laid out. And that's what happens. So this woman is probably, probably hurt, but also liberated. Because what does sin do when you have secret sins hidden in your life? It has shackles on you. And it enslaves you. And so to one extent, she's probably shamed. But then in another sense, she's, she's set free. And she doesn't deny anything that Jesus has said. She doesn't make any excuses or accuse him of making something up. And in fact, she seems to authenticate that everything that he said is true. She says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet because there's no other way that you could know this about me. That's what she is saying. And in this statement that she makes of, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, it's very significant because she is a Samaritan. Uh, and kind of a little bit of background on the Samaritans. The Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Bible, or the Old Testament, as inspired Scripture. They only believed in the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, and so they didn't believe in anything after Deuteronomy. So Joshua through Malachi, it's a different order in the Hebrew Bible, but they, they would not have looked to as Scripture. And so when she speaks of a prophet, she's referring to uh, a messianic prophecy in Deuteronomy, which is the only really messianic prophecy she would have had other than Genesis 3 and Genesis 49 and and a couple others in Numbers. Uh, But when she speaks of the the prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 15, Moses writes this. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him It is to him you shall listen. Uh, And so when she points to that passage, well, because the the Samaritans rejected every other prophet after Moses, she's in essence saying, hey, Jesus, I think you you are maybe this prophet that Moses spoke of. There was no, in their mind, there was no prophet between Moses and the, the second Moses who was going to be Jesus. So here, her mere acknowledgement that Jesus is a prophet is showing that she's, she's making this, this movement towards seeing and believing Jesus for who he truly is. And as a prophet, she, whether it's to intentionally change the, the subject or just, hey, I really want an answer to this, but I think it's, she's, she's trying to shift gears away from her own sin. Right? Is that usually our favorite topic to talk about, our own sin? Or is it much, much easier to talk about this, this theoretical, theological debate? 
right? Let, let's get away from ground level in my life and let's go up to the sky, Jesus. Let, let's talk about something that's not really going to impact me. That's what she does. So she, she points to the biggest theological debate between the Samaritans and the Jews of her time. Uh, of where is the right place to worship God. And she, she says, hey, the, uh, the Samaritans, uh, she says, our fathers point to this mountain. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And when she says this mountain, she's speaking of Mount Gerizim, which would have been, you know, they're, they're probably at the base of this mountain. She says, hey, our fathers worship at this mountain. But then she says, you Jews worship in Jerusalem. So which one is it? Where are we supposed to worship, Jesus? Let's, let's start this debate. And Jesus kind of says, you know what? That debate really doesn't even matter. Because there is coming a time when we are no longer going to worship in a particular place. There's going to be a time when worship at Mount Gerizim is going to be fruitless and worship in Jerusalem is also going to be obsolete. See, Jesus is announcing that the way you have been worshiping is going to change. And Jesus is the one who brings about that change. No longer is there going to be a central place of worship where people have to travel to in order to worship God. But Jesus is saying there is going to come a time when we are just going to, to worship differently. He's going to get into the details of that in the following verses. But here is the, the big point that Jesus is making. And he, he wants her to understand that that true worship is not going to be based upon a certain location. It's now going to be based upon a certain person. That rather than going to Mount Gerizim, rather than going to Jerusalem, we are now called to go to Jesus. He is the one who ushers in that new time that is coming. And so we don't, we don't go anywhere. There's no physical geographical location on earth that we have to go to to be able to worship. And this is a very, very simple truth. And some of you may be saying, well, well yeah, okay, I understand that. But here's how important this is and how significant it is. If you just think of world history, think of the Crusades in the Middle Ages. Why were the Crusades fought? Why did so many people die? They, they fought and they died in the land of Israel, in the land of Palestine. They fought and they died there because what did they believe about that land? That it was special. That it was unique, that they, if they were there, they could worship God to an even greater degree. And I would say that they completely missed this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Because Jesus is saying all of that is going to be obsolete. You don't have to go to a location anymore. And what's amazing is there's three different religions that look to the city of Jerusalem as a sacred place. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. But I would argue right now that as Christians, we don't need to look and see Jerusalem as a holy place. That is not one of our holy cities. We are not called to go there in order to worship. We go to Christ. Because right here, He is ushering in a new way of worship. And Israel, under the Old Covenant, would go to Jerusalem because that's where the temple was. And that's where the priests were, in the temple. But under the New Covenant, which we had the, the joy and the blessing of remembering this morning as we celebrated communion, under the New Covenant, we have a new priest. 
love what Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 say. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So where is our high priest right now? He's not in Jerusalem. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we go directly to Jesus. He's the one who gives us access to God the Father. And now we go to Him rather than to any other particular place. So we have to to disconnect in our minds that we can only worship God in a certain location. Or that we have to go to a certain place to be able to grow in our worship with God. Right? And in Islam, in every good Muslim's life, at some point they have to do what? They have to make a pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca. We have nothing like that. We don't have to go anywhere to grow in our worship. Our worship as we are going to see, is called to be not in a location, but in a certain manner, in spirit and in truth. Which leads us to a third connection that we need to to make. If we're going to grow in worship, we, we must connect our worship with our life, and we must disconnect worship from a certain location. But then thirdly, we must connect our hearts and minds in worship. And this is seen in verses 22 through 24. Read along with me. It says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus begins to, to, to rebuke the Samaritan woman as a representative of her people. So he's going to say, you, in verse 22, speaking, you plural, of the Samaritans. The Samaritans worship what they do not know. So Jesus is saying, hey, you have been worshiping the one true God, but they have been doing that imperfectly because their knowledge of that God is incomplete. Because then it goes back to what have they seen as Scripture? Only the first five books of the Bible. So they've been worshiping in spirit, but not in truth. And Jesus contrasts the Samaritans' worship, worship with the worship of the Jews. He says, you worship what you do not know. We, speaking of the Jews, worship what we know. The Jews have worshipped according to knowledge because they have been in and received God's revelation in the Old Testament. But even as we saw in John chapter 3, was the Jews' worship perfect? No, not at all. Nicodemus, the teacher in Israel, still didn't understand what it meant to be born again, to be born from above, to be regenerated. He didn't understand the nature of salvation. So simply having knowledge doesn't necessarily even mean that you will also worship according to that knowledge. And after contrasting the, the Jewish and Samaritan forms of worship... Jesus makes the statement, for salvation is from the Jews. But this is not just any salvation that he's speaking of. In the Greek, it's literally the salvation. He's saying, hey, the salvation that both of these people groups have been waiting for, the Samaritans and the Jews, that salvation comes not through the Samaritans, but through the Jewish people. They were both awaiting for the Messiah, but the Messiah comes not through the Samaritans, but through 
Israel. And then Jesus goes one step further in verse 23 than what he went and what he spoke in verse 21. Verse 21, he said, there's an hour coming. In verse 23, he says, but the hour is coming and is now here. And this is where Jesus is saying something is fundamentally different. Even right now, as they are in the middle of this conversation, something is different from what it used to be. And what Jesus is doing is he is saying this is there is a fundamental change that has taken place in the way that people are now called to worship. Jesus is inaugurating a new pattern of how we interact with the one true God. Previously, it had been we go to the temple, we, we, we interact with the priests and the priests go and represent us to God. Now all of that has changed. This is really just echoing what Jesus said and did in John chapter 2. When he in essence said that he is the new temple. You can tear down the old temple. Jesus is going to raise up the new temple. But Jesus says this. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father. Look at how he describes how our worship should be. What true worship is, is in spirit and truth. Now, that little phrase, in spirit, it could refer to uh, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, or it could just refer to uh, the human spirit that dwells within us. And I, I think it's just referring to the human spirit within us. Speaking about we, our worship of God is intended to be not merely external, but it needs to be something that is internal. The, the invisible part of our being is what we are called to worship with. And sometimes... And when we see this, uh, that we are to worship in spirit, sometimes we just think of, well, I just have to have energy and enthusiasm as I worship. Uh, and that's not what this is speaking about here. It's not just saying, be more excited as you worship. It's saying, hey, your inner person needs to be where you worship God. Because when you were just going to a physical location, what could you do? You could just take your body somewhere you could just check that off the box. Say, yes, I worship God by going to a location. Jesus is saying, all that is done away with. That's not how we are called to worship anymore. We worship God in our spirit and in truth. We don't really go through a set of rituals. Instead of uh, our hearts and minds must be engaged and focused upon God. Now, if we're going to engage our, our inner person, it also must be in accordance with what is true. There's a kind of a popular uh, way of condemning the church today uh, of, you know, speaking of a dead orthodoxy. You ever heard, heard of that phrase? Uh, say, oh, I don't want to be a part of a dead orthodoxy. And usually when, when people use that language, they also uh, kind of try and present the, the opposite and uphold, uh, we could say, is a, a zealous heterodoxy. Hey, I, I want to be uh, zealous and excited uh, and less focused on, on truth. I just, it's all about the, I need to have... The, the spirit involved. And oftentimes what such a, a zealous heterodoxy does is it, it shifts into something completely different. And we need to see that both a dead orthodoxy and a zealous heterodoxy, uh, worshiping in spirit but not in truth, they're both condemnable. That They are both frowned upon and rejected by God. And that's what we have to understand, that these two elements of worshiping in spirit and truth. Uh, oftentimes we try and separate them, but they're really intended to be viewed just as a single inseparable unit. 
Uh, and, and that's seen here in the way that the, this Greek is constructed. There's only one preposition, which means, hey, it's supposed to be viewed together inseparably. And, and this is one of the things that John likes to do. He's already connected grace and truth in an indivisible union in John 1:14, And then in John chapter 3, verse 5, he connected uh, baptism of the, the spirit and, water and spirit. Uh, and so we, we need to see and understand, not, not creating this dichotomy of, you know, you can either worship this way or this way, but no, it has to go together. We, we have to worship uh, with, our, with our inner person, with our spirit, and that worship has to be built and, and rooted and founded upon the truth of God's Word. During the, the Protestant Reformation, uh, as the Reformers are beginning to, to make changes and call out the, the Roman Catholic Church for what had been taking place, uh, prior to the Reformation, the focus of... Uh, any church that you walked into was the altar uh, where the priest would stand and, and, and participate or celebrate Mass of, of giving out uh, the, the wafer and uh, the, the wine, the cup. And the way the Roman Catholics understand even what we celebrated today uh, is that every time uh, that takes place, Christ is re-sacrificed. And that, that's their understanding of what we celebrated today. But that was the focus, the altar. And... and during the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther and especially John Calvin, they, they begin to see the Word and see what it's calling us to, and they changed the way that the church was structured. They changed what the focus was to be, especially John Calvin. What he did is he ordered that the Catholic altars, which had been the center of the worship, be removed from all of the churches, and that a pulpit with a Bible on it would be placed at the center of the building. So that... Uh, no matter where you came into the room, you would see in the very center, in the very heart of this building, was the book that we are to build our faith upon. The Word of God. And we all look to that. And even churches began to be designed so that the, 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 the pulpit, everything was centered in the, the middle of the room. No longer is it the altar, but it's the proclamation of God's Word that is supposed to be the focal point of our worship now. We're to worship in spirit and truth. And what we also see here is why this is so important. That God is is seeking such people to worship Him in this way. But why this way, God? Why does it have to be that we worship in spirit and in truth? And Jesus says, well... It has to be this way because what is God like? God is spirit. So that is how he is calling us to worship him. We worship in spirit and in truth because God himself is spirit. And that is how we are called to worship him. He must be worshipped according to his own self-revelation in the Old and New Testaments. And if we're going to be true worshipers, we have to be most concerned with that. Where is our heart and then in the way that I am worshiping, is it, is it of my own making? Is it of my own design? Am I worshiping however I want to? Or am I worshiping according to what God has called me to observe and how I'm called to worship Him in Scripture? Worship without spirit is empty and worship without truth is blind. We have to have both. And we have to see them as being inseparable. Not a one or the other. So if we're truly going to worship God, if we're going to grow in our worship of God, we have to make this connection between our our hearts and our minds. 
our emotions and our thoughts of how we are truly worshiping and understanding God. Because if we don't understand who God is, that's not going to be a worship that is pleasing to Him. We must worship in spirit and in truth. And then the last connection that we're going to see Jesus bringing forward to the Samaritan woman uh, in this conversation is found in, in verses 25 and 26. That we must connect our worship to Jesus. Verse 25 says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. As the Samaritan woman hears all of this, she's becoming more and more convinced that Jesus is somebody important. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're a prophet. And she says, hey, when Messiah comes, he'll tell us everything. She's beginning to connect what Jesus is saying about this, this mysterious new way of worshiping. Well, hey, when Messiah comes, he'll, he'll clear all of that up. And what's Jesus' response? I'm that guy. That's what he's saying. But, it, but it's a lot more than just I'm that guy. Because in the Greek... The way what he says is is more literally, I am the one speaking to you. And, and for any Jew or any Samaritan, those two words, I am, would ring a bell. Because that is God's own self-disclosure in Exodus chapter 3. When, when Moses, being commissioned by God, says, well, I don't know if I can go because they may ask you, they may ask me your name, God. What am I going to say to him? And God says in Exodus 3, says to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So building on that, this is going to be the first occasion in John's Gospel where Jesus is going to use the, that phrase, I am. And so it's not, he's not merely saying that he is the Messiah. He's saying, I am the God of Israel. And this woman would have picked up on that. She would have understand what he was then claiming. These are a lot more, these words are a lot more than just merely asserting that he is the Messiah. They are an assertion that he is God. But they're also one more thing. They are an invitation to this woman. They're an invitation for her to believe, for her to trust not in herself anymore, but to trust in Him, to look to Him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the Lamb who has taken away the sins of the world. This is an invitation for her to believe. And this is an invitation for every single one of us to do the same. To wrestle with, do I believe that Jesus is, I am. Do I believe that Jesus is God? Do I trust in Him? Do I believe that He will give me living water that I desperately need and that only that living water can truly satisfy me? Or am I going to keep on turning to other things? Am I going to keep turning to other wells, other broken cisterns to try and make me happy? What we are called to do here is to see Christ for who He is. He is revealing himself to the woman and to us. And of the four connections that we've spoken about, if we want to grow in our worship, this last connection is most important. Because if you do the other three, 
but miss the last one, you're still in error. You're still worshiping someone and something else. This final connection of worshiping Christ, connecting our worship with Him, is what is most important. And if we do the other three, we still fall short of true worship. True worship begins with looking to and acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. And what's amazing, what is so encouraging is this brief conversation with Jesus. This woman sees her sin, acknowledges it, and comes to faith in Christ. How do I know that? Because look at what she does verses 27 through 30, we'll be looking at in coming weeks. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. What did she immediately go do? He says, hey, you you need to come meet this person who just told me everything that I've ever done. You need to come meet the guy who's called me out on all my sin. Right? That's our typical way of evangelizing, right? That's how you guys normally share the gospel. Come talk to Jesus. He'll show you all of your ugly spots, all of the worst parts of you. Jesus will put his finger right on them. (laughs) But that's what she does. He's changed her life. And now she's going to go and share that with others. But most fundamentally, she has made that last connection. That she now needs to worship Jesus. She doesn't need to go worship on Mount Gerizim. She doesn't need to go worship in Jerusalem. She needs to worship in spirit and in truth. And the only way that she's going to do that is by believing and trusting in Christ. And may we all do that. Looking not to ourselves, but looking to Him more and more each and every day. So thankful for this this conversation. There's so much more I want to continue to look at. We will do that in in the coming weeks. But let's let's pray together today.